So what is catechesis? It's about giving growth to a faith that already exists because evangelization has happened. But if evangelization hasn't happened, what are we maturing? Welcome everybody to another episode of Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am not at all joined today by my co-host Dave Wolfsbane Van Vickle, because today is a special episode. I took all of the points that Dave and I made in our catechist episode a few days ago and turned it into a talk that I gave to my own catechists here in Texas. You'll hear me quote a lot of the JP2's catechesi tridende. You'll hear me weave the kerygma in and out of the talk. I put a lot of the principles into action that we talk about here on the show, and I just want you to hear how I actually do this in the real world. Yes, I even give them the same five practical takeaways at the end. I think you'll enjoy this. I mean, who else threatens their parent catechist with eternal hellfire at 845 in the morning? So here it is. Enjoy. One of the things about vision and what we're trying to do here is you constantly have to cast the vision because it's easy when the busyness of ministry and the craziness of life comes at us that we can often forget to keep the main thing the main thing. At least that's what it's like in my family. Y'all are probably perfect at it, which is why you're here. Um, But so what I want to help us do is keep the main thing the main thing when it comes to being a catechist here in our parish. What does it mean? What does the word catechesis mean? Literally. What does it mean literally? Does anyone know? That's how we use it today, but I'm looking for the literal meaning of the original Greek word. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? It means literally to re-echo, which sounds a little redundant. It means to re-echo, which means the teaching that we bring is not ours. We are echoing the teaching of those who have gone before us. The most important thing we can think of when we think of catechesis is that it's not new. We're not here inventing stuff. If you're inventing stuff, you probably shouldn't be here because it's probably not what the church teaches, right? So our goal is to be creative, but apply it to the gospel, right? We do not want to teach some foreign alien truth to the gospel, right? You, we all have our own beliefs and opinions. We all have our own political views and moral views and all this different stuff that we believe is informed and in line with the church. But the goal is, this is what Pope John Paul II said. I'm going to teach mostly from his document, Catechesi Tridende, where he says that the catechist, now this is, this is pretty huge. The catechist ought to engage in asceticism. Y'all know what asceticism is? Give me a for instance of a of a, an ascetic practice. Do y'all know? Yes, self denial. So fasting is asceticism, right? All of these practices that we think of monks in their monasteries, right, doing all these disciplines, right? Asceticism means that we engage in these disciplines so that we can have self control. Because if you don't control oneself, you can't possess yourself. And if you can't possess yourself. How can you give yourself away, which is the Christian definition of love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Also, what is love? Love is self-gift. 
Love is self-gift. To love another person is to give yourself to them. Now, our human experience of love, the paradigm of it, is marital love, right? You say, I do. You don't say, I do. Please see the below contract, right? Please see the stipulations. It's until death do you part, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, or as my wife did on our wedding day, for richer and for poorer. She literally did that on her wedding day. She mumbled in for poorer. Little did she know she's marrying the church worker. She should have known better. But um, the whole idea at the center of love is self-gift, is self-gift. So this means that the disciplines of morality and virtue are a part of what it means to be an effective catechist. Why? Because the tongue is the hardest thing to control. It's so tiny, causes so much damage. Right, St. James in his epistle talks about the tongue can be a fire lit from the fires of hell. Right, he's super, super serious about this. He says, well, think of a huge ship and it's, that whole ship is controlled by a tiny rudder. So too the human life, controlled by this tiny thing of the human tongue. And so then St. James says, that is why teachers are held, buckle up for this, right? Are held to a stricter account, Right? Put a little fear of God into you this early in the morning. Don't think anyone thought that was going to happen. But why does this matter? Because when we come to approach our classrooms, this is not to be taken lightly. This is how people get inserted into the mystery of Christ. And you have the honor of being a part of that process. How beautiful a gift is it? It's not just, oh my goodness, I have to do this, or all right, I fog a mirror, I'll volunteer, right? No one's going to teach my kids class, so I'll go do it. You have been invited, gifted and called by God for this moment, amen? Amen. Some of y'all a little shaky about that, amen, I know, I know. (laughs) Amen, stricter account, right? So here is the deal. I I always remind people, I feel morally obliged to remind everyone, um, when Jesus was calling disciples to himself, right? You're familiar with this, right? He goes around, he calls people to be his disciples. In that day and age, women were regarded basically as children, right? So no rabbi had female disciples except Jesus, right? We think of Mary and her sister Martha. They were disciples of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, disciple of Jesus. She was known to the disciples, Right? So Jesus did a lot of things that were extraordinarily countercultural. But then he did something else. Right? Children were regarded so lowly when they were of a certain age. And so Jesus, at one point, the people are bringing their children to get blessed by him. You imagine these scores of people, the crowds that press in against Jesus, are bringing him little children that he might bless them. And what do the apostles do? Do you know what they do? They push the people and the kids away. And Jesus says, I love the King James Version of this, suffer not the children to come unto me. Let the kids come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In a society, in a whole culture that minimized the impact of kids, Jesus Christ then takes a child, puts him in their midst and says, unless you become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wild. Right, this is, we miss, we're like, oh, bless his heart, keep a little kid, a little object lesson. But we don't understand, he's upending kind of the, the whole cultural norms of that day. And then he goes one step further. And he says, and I tell you, 
If anyone, right, this is teaches one of these kids to break the commandments, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and to be hurled into the sea. So we teachers are held to a stricter account, right? My, uh, at Franciscan University where I went to school, my wife was really close to the woman, the nun who was in charge of the catechetics department, right? And she had this big, uh, or her, her goal was to purchase for like $3,000 a millstone and to put it right in front of the catechetics department as a simple reminder with a little plaque in front. So what do I mean by, why am I saying all this stuff? Because it is an awesome responsibility. This is an awesome responsibility that we have, but it is a beautiful calling to be here. And I need you to understand that Jesus Christ will pour forth his grace within you in order to equip you for this task that he set before you. You are on the front lines. Your yes to Christ in being here is going to nurture the faith of the next generation of the church. You and I get the privilege of participating in making saints for tomorrow. How awesome is that? I think that's awesome. Some of y'all don't look too excited, still think about millstones, but let's look at the document, look on the page here, Catechesi Tridende. This was the first document, um, first major encyclical of Pope John Paul II. Generally speaking, I read it every year at the beginning of a new um, school year. In the first place, Christocentricity. Christocentricity is intended. That means putting Christ at the center of all your teachings, no matter what the teaching in the faith. Christocentricity is intended to stress that at the heart of catechesis, we find, in essence, a person. The person of Jesus of Nazareth. Why does that matter for us? Sometimes we feel like we are breaking, like we're just teaching this or that specific thing. But if you can't find the link back to Jesus, how are the kids supposed to? So he's saying when we do catechesis, we need to always keep Christ at the center. That every proposition we propose is not just a statement on a piece of paper. It's tied to the person, Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, this is good. This is, this is, this is feedback, call and response. Uh, the only son, okay, I love, now this is beautiful. He starts weaving in scripture to tell you who the person of Christ is. The only son from the father, full of grace and truth, who suffered and died for us and who now, after rising, is living with us forever. It is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christian living consists of rule following and list making. Oh wait, no, it doesn't say that. And Christian living consists in following Christ. Now, I love this. And I, I, I'm going to give you a, a tip. This is my teacher pro tip. You want to sound like you're a super genius? Just memorize a handful of Latin words and throw them, just pepper them in. Oh, yes, uh, we are talking today about the mysterium iniquitatis, or the mystery of iniquity for you fools. Right now, you just throw that in there. So this is the sequela Christi. What is the sequela Christi? The following of Christ. The following of Christ. We are here to make disciples, not fans of Jesus Christ. Followers, not fans. Followers, not fans. Followers, not Exactly. We want followers. If you look in the New Testament over and over again throughout the life of Jesus Christ, he constantly pushes away the crowds. Did you know that? 
Like, yes, there is times where he heals them and they come in swarms and there's so many of them, his heart breaks for them and he feeds the multitude, the 5,000 and the 4,000 and all this stuff. But in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, Jesus starts doing these miracles right after the, the wedding feast in Cana. He starts healing people. People start flocking to him. And he says, uh, or in scripture says in John 2, 23 to 25, he says, because of the signs he had worked, many uh, people began to believe in him. And then scripture says, but he would not believe himself to them. For he knew what was in man and needed no one to testify to man. Jesus Christ wants you to know that following him is not about a popularity contest. Right? Sometimes I feel like evangelization efforts in the Catholic Church is like a panic that we're no longer the people with the most, with the highest, you know, practicing population numbers of their religion. Right? You look at Honduras. 30 years ago, Honduras was 98% Roman Catholic. Now it's 74% Roman Catholic. Our evangelization efforts is not just to build a large number of people. It's to intensify our level of discipleship. Do you follow Christ the King? Because his throne is not gilded with gold, but is in the shape of a cross. No man can be my follower unless he first denies himself every day and takes up the cross. Jesus Christ did not write Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I probably wouldn't have started with that, Jesus. You should start with something happier, like, if you follow me, you'll go to heaven, it'll be awesome, high five, up top, right? Don't, don't do the agony in the garden, give them a rose garden, Jesus, right? But this is a beautiful thing, because when we sell people a false image, right, that Jesus just wants, you know, glittering flowers and that's it, right? When we, when we lose sight of the cross, what happens is when suffering enters young people's lives, and it does, They don't have a firm ground in which to stand. They don't know that Christ suffers with them and for them. And so when suffering comes, they immediately push away. God, where are you? And they don't see, one, that they're standing in the palm of his hand. And number two, that he is suffering in solidarity with them on the cross. And here's the interesting thing about the woodlands. While many kids, though not all, do not suffer from poverty, they suffer from excess. Right? They suffer the sufferings of excess, which largely is internal sufferings. High, high anxieties and depressions, a lack of real relationship. I had a friend who's super rich, super, super rich. Old money, doctor, all this stuff. And we were talking, and I remember the JP2 quote, uh, Pope John Paul, where he said, no man is so poor that he has nothing to give, nor so rich that he has nothing to receive. And that quote really stuck with me. And I'm talking with this, with this family. So I was friends with their, their firstborn kiddo. And I'm talking with the parents. And I realized that in the last you know, 10 years that I've known them, not a single person has ever taken them out to dinner. Yet they have taken literally hundreds. They used to take 20 or 30 people out to dinner at a time. And they would pay for everything. Right? And I realized, like, think of the poverty of that. They have never been receptive of love. And, and then it gets worse. It gets presumed upon them. Well, of course, they're paying for this. And so me and my now wife, then girlfriend, took them out to dinner because we just wanted to manifest the fact 
that we love them when we saw this poverty in their life. Often it's internal. So what, it makes our task a lot harder. We can't just feed someone food and expect, oh my gosh, you have helped me. Oftentimes it's a lack of relationship. And so we come in representing the body of Jesus Christ. And like St. Therese of Lisieux, so often we are the heart in the body of Christ. And I think some of y'all sense this, which is why so many of our catechists are women. Right? Because women have more intuition, right, generally speaking, about relationships than men do. Men tend to be more task oriented, women more relation oriented, generally speaking, which means generally I'm wrong. But when we focus on this, right, the appeal is I want to stand in the gap. And I want, it's not because I'm perfect, it's because I've been healed by the love of Jesus Christ. Hurting people hurt others. Who thinks that's true? Hurting people hurt others. But the Christian truth is healed people can help heal others. And I I tell people all the time, part of living in a post-Christian culture is our task is to acknowledge, number one, that we're all the walking wounded. And number two, to ask for that healing within ourselves so that from a place of healing, we can go and be salt and light to others. Maybe not salt and light in a healing analogy. You don't want salt in your wounds. Maybe, uh, as Pope Francis says, that the church is called to be the field hospital for these people, on the front lines. Our churches are meant to be refuge for the weary. All of you who are heavy laden, come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. So this is what we want to do. We want to take from them the yoke of false identity that the world imposes upon them. We want to take from them an experience or a feeling of being alone. And we need to teach them, right, what the yoke of the gospel means. It means self-discipline, yes, but it means first and foremost receptivity to the love that God has for them. And from that receptivity, it means stepping forward in a new way of life. That my life should not look like my neighbors who don't know the love of God. My life, though, should lead me to love my neighbor as I love myself. That's new. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Even as I have loved you, so are you to love one another. And how did Jesus love? He didn't love with a fickle love like Michael Gormley's love. All right, what's my love? My love is based probably like a lot of y'all's love. Actually, y'all probably much better. But right, is I expect other people that I love to love me back. I expect their personalities to mesh with my personality. I expect them just to be as generous or whatever in equal portion, right? But what does Jesus say? Do not love those who love you, for don't the Gentiles do the same? Right? Rather, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's like, ah, no thank you, Jesus. Right? Jesus, when you throw a feast, don't invite your friends who can repay you. Rather, invite the poor, the blind, the lame. The outcast, the forgotten, right? You invite them, and he says, behold, because they cannot repay you, your reward will be great. Right? This is the Christian dynamism that turns the world upside down, or rather, sets it right ways that it should be while everyone else is walking on their heads. This is what it is meant to be, self-sacrificial generosity. Now, how does that look in the classroom? Brothers and sisters, we are here to put people not just in touch with, but in communion, in intimacy with Jesus Christ. In intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's our task. That's our only task. 
to put people not just in touch, we're not just here to say his name so that they learn some facts and figures, but in communion. Pope John Paul uses the word communion more than the word community. In one of his documents he says, I deliberately reject the word community because I don't want the Christian mystery of the church to be like a sociological reality, right? Right, I, I, you might belong to um, you know, a club. That, that might be a community, right? But we want communion. We want intimacy with Christ and one another through the person of Christ. That's our goal, that's our task. Let's move on. Sequela Christi. Uh, this is paragraph 19. The specific character of catechesis as distinct from the initial conversion bringing the proclamation of the gospel, has the twofold objective of maturing the initial faith and of educating the true disciple of Christ by means of a deeper and more systematic knowledge of the person and message of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of y'all in here know the Apostles' Creed? Right, the Apostles' Creed, just one of you, just her. Lindsay knows the Apostles' Creed. She will never raise her hand again. She had, you even did a T-Rex arm. You were like, right? The Apostles' Creed, right? What about the Nicene Creed? Right, that we say at Mass? You know the creed that we say at Mass? I always joke that the Nicene Creed is that one prayer that you cannot say on your own, but if you have at least a buddy with you, you can finish the whole thing no problem, right? <laughs> it's something that can only be said out loud, right? But the funny thing about the creeds, when you look at the creeds, what do they do? They address the areas in the ancient days of the church, in the beginning of the church, they address those areas of conflict. Is Jesus truly God? Is Jesus just the highest creature? Right? That's what the priest Arius taught. He, he was just a creature, but he was the highest. He was the best. But he was just a creature. He was of similar substance, homoousius of the Father, but in the Catholic Church, we proclaim he is homoousius. He is of the same substance, or we say in the Mass now, consubstantial with the Father. True God from true God. Light from light. Right? All that stuff. Now, here's the, here's the funny thing. When you look at the creed, the creed leaves out kind of a lot. What does it leave out? It leaves out kind of like the old rosary before JP2 gave us the luminous mysteries. It kind of goes to joyful, the, the birth of Christ, who Christ is, the union of his divine and human natures to his one divine person. It's known as the hypostatic union. And then it skips all the way over to his suffering and death. We got nothing about his earthly life. We got nothing about the proclamation of the kingdom. Right? It's just like going from the joyful mystery to the sorrowful mysteries, right? I, when I was a little kid, I used to be like, I feel like we're missing something. Something in the middle is kind of absent. Now, that is totally awesome if you come from a liturgical church like we do. Right? When we go to liturgy, what do we have? Well, yes, we proclaim the creed, but we do it right after we've proclaimed the gospel. So the gospel fits in and fills in nicely those areas. But what happens when you take the creed out of the liturgy and you form all of catechetics based on the creed? Well, you end up teaching the major doctrinal points of what we believe about Jesus, but we skip over the actual teachings and the doings of Jesus. So what happens is you have a whole bunch of people that might be able to tell you what the hypostatic union is, because that was an area of intense disagreement that the creed helped to reconcile. You are not a Christian unless you believe this. You are not a Christian unless you believe that. Right? That was the point of the creeds. There was all this fighting over this stuff. But no one disputed. The high priest Arius, 
right? Nestorius, the Nestorian heretics, the Monophysite heretics, the Monophysite heretics, and every other heretic in between. They never disputed whether Jesus said, unless your faith is like the grain of a mustard seed, or if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea and it will obey you, right? Like no one disputes that. No one disputes that Jesus used parables. No one disputes that he died on the cross, more or less. So what happened? Well, the creeds didn't talk about that. But once that becomes the basis of catechesis, we leave out the person of Jesus. So what happens historically? We have a bunch of Catholics who are catechized but not evangelized, who are sacramentalized but not evangelized. Let's go to CT20. Nevertheless, the specific aim of catechesis is to develop, with God's help, an as yet initial faith, and to advance in fullness and nourish day by day the Christian life of the faithful. Day by day. I want to point something out to you. You have them for like an hour, hour and a half. Day by day. Who, who do you think day by day? Who has these kids day by day? Mom and daddy. Right? They are the primary catechists of the kids. We say that not in way of judgment. We have to empower and encourage these parents to do this. Young and old. It is, in fact, a matter of giving growth. So what is catechesis? It's about giving growth to a faith that already exists because evangelization has happened. But if evangelization hasn't happened, what are we maturing? At the level of knowledge and in life, to the seed of faith sown by the Holy Spirit, and with the initial proclamation. What is initial proclamation? When you think of the word evangelization, that's what we mean by formally in the church as proclamation. The initial proclamation. The telling of what Christ has done for you, the good news. And effectively transmitted by baptism. What does that mean? That means baptism gives you what our faith longs for. Incorporation into Christ and the application of his death and resurrection to my individual soul. So why St. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, do you not know that those of you who have been, uh, Romans chapter 6, do you not know that those of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, if we've been united to Christ in a death like his, so too will we be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. So the actual act of saving us, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, gets applied to us through our faith and the reception of baptism. Catechesis aims, therefore, at developing understanding of the mystery of Christ in light of God's word so that the whole of a person's humanity is impregnated by that word. Why did he use the word impregnated? Because the church, exactly, because the analogy of a pregnant woman is the perfect image of the bride of Christ, the church. I am filled, I cannot give life unless I am first filled with life. You cannot make disciples unless you are first a disciple. So my question to you is, are you? Are you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the eternal son of God, son of Mary, that he entered into this world to die for my sins and bring me home to the Father through his powerful resurrection? Or is this a thing I was brought up in that I just believe because mommy and daddy wants me to? Right? The conversion at the heart of it all is not the conversion of the kids. It's my conversion. It's your conversion. That's the domino effect that begins. Okay impregnated by the word, changed by the working of grace into a new creature. The Christian thus sets himself to follow Christ, sequela Christi, uh, leveling up, and learns more and more within the church to think like him, to judge like him, to act in conformity with his commandments, and to hope as he invites us to. How beautiful is that? What's the point of catechesis? To make Christ 
new in every human heart. We get to help people be like Christ. That's our goal, how to think like him, how to act like him, how to live like him and thus renew the world, not just how to impart information. A person walked up to a priest the other day and said to him, Father, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? You know what Father said? He said, I don't know, and quite frankly, I don't care. (laughs) See, that's a joke. Ignorance and apathy. Ignorance, I don't know. Apathy, I don't care. Why does this matter? So often in catechesis, we focus on ignorance. That's the easiest thing to solve. We give them data. No longer ignorant. Congratulations. But there are plenty of smart people in hell. (laughs) There's only one category of people who aren't in hell. You know what that one category is? The category is holy. We don't want to make smart saints only, or smart people only. We want to make holy people. And the way you make them holy is by putting people not only in touch, but in communion with Jesus Christ, in intimacy with our Lord. How amazing is that? Because here's the deal. If you put people not only in touch, but in communion, in intimacy with our Lord, you actually address the apathy. Because if someone is apathetic, if they don't care, what they learn will disappear from their brains after class is over. You ever seen that happen with your own kids? No, right? My son Noah has two older sisters. And the first day of class, which they had last week, we homeschool our kids, he was so excited to learn how to read. My wife actually had to tell him, you have to wait your turn to be taught, right? There's only so much me to go around, right? You have to wait your turn to be taught. Why? Because he was so excited to read, he becomes a sponge, Right, The apathy, if we can solve the apathy, we've solved the ignorance problem. Because then they're no longer apathetic. Now it's not like we're shoving a funnel in their mouth and force-feeding them the gospel. Now it becomes, I, I am recognizing my own appetite for these truths. Right? I, I need this for myself. So the funny thing is, within the classroom, there's only one way, truly, to communicate or to conquer apathy and thus solve the ignorance problem. And that's to give them yourself as you're giving them his gospel. Give them yourself as you're giving them his gospel. Jesus says, I will build my church in Matthew 16. But the gift of self, our desire is to help make Christ known and loved, known and loved. To put it more precisely, within the whole process of evangelization, the aim of catechesis is to be the teaching and maturation stage. So it already implies that the birthing stage of the initial proclamation and acceptance with faith has happened. That is to say, the period in which the Christian, having accepted by faith the person of Jesus Christ as the one Lord, and having given him complete adherence, oh, I love that language, complete adherence by sincere conversion of heart, endeavors to know better this Jesus to whom he has entrusted himself, to know his mystery, the kingdom of God proclaimed by him, the requirements and promises contained in his gospel message, and the paths that he has laid down for anyone who wishes to follow him. It is true that being a Christian means saying yes to Jesus Christ, but let us remember that this yes has two levels. It consists in surrendering to the word of God and relying on it, But also it means at a later stage, endeavoring to know better and better the profound meaning of this word. Isn't that awesome? To be submersed in the word of God, to soak in the word of God. 
That's how we communicate Christ to others because he has been so communicated to us that our lives proclaim it even if we don't use words. But of course you have to use words. All right, you have to use words. Did you know that the, the Catholic Church and the Code of Canon Law uses the phrase strict obligation, or excuse me, in the uh, catechism, uses the phrase strict obligation, which is the same language it uses for your Sunday mass requirement for evangelizing your neighbors with the word of God? That you have a strict obligation as lay people to evangelize your neighbors. Strict obligation. Ooh, that's some, that's some epic language. Okay, what makes a good catechist? What makes a good catechist? What makes a good catechist? Number one, a daily prayer life is the most important. How many of y'all pray every day? Just kidding, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you raise your hands anyway. Um, I know what I mean by this is, how does your prayer life look? Some people say prayers. Say a Hail Mary when their head hits the pillow at night. Maybe say an Our Father when you wake up. That's okay for like a baby in the faith. But Christ is calling you to not just crawl, but to walk and to run in the Lord. So what does that look like? To have a daily prayer life means, number one, more than anything else, you realize that your discipleship must affect your calendar. That you have to carve in the midst of the craziness of your day time for Christ consistently in both time of day and in duration. You're like, listen, Jesus, I don't feel like praying. I got three hours of sleep last night and it's 530 in the morning. I don't want to do this at all. And Jesus looks at you and says, I don't want to die for your sins on that cross, but look at me. No, that's what my mom says in order to guilt trip you. My mom literally said this. This is one of my favorite stories. I tell, tell her this all the time. But when I was like 17, she said, if Jesus Christ, beaten, battered, and bloody, can carry his cross up a hill and die for your sins, surely, surely you can make your bed every morning. <laughs> I was like, whoa! Whoa, okay. Daily prayer life is the most important. Of all the things you do to prepare yourself as a catechist, the most important thing you can do is to be not only in touch, but in communion, in intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So your daily prayer life has to affect everything. It has to become the thing that's the most important. When's the best time to plant an oak tree? 25 years ago. When's the second best time to plant an oak tree today? When's the best time to have a prayer life? 25 years ago. When's the second best time to have a prayer life? Today. Today. I want mature Christians who are in front of my kids. I want people who know how to guard their tongue in order to proclaim the truth of the gospel and not their own agenda. I want people who are willing to listen. I want people who are willing, daring to love and to give of themselves so as to nurture the faith of my kids, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How beautiful is that? A good catechist has a mentality, buckle up, for fides querens intellectum. See, I told you, you think I'm so much smarter because I threw another Latin phrase in there. Fides querens intellectum is a Latin phrase coined by St. Anselm, and it means faith-seeking understanding. A lot of our kids today are quickly becoming atheists when they're in middle school or high school because they think that faith is just a series of opinions uh, from a magical time and thought imposed upon me by mom and dad in the church. That's not true. Insofar as possible, the medieval dictum held, insofar as possible, join faith to reason. So you need to use your intellect to make the divinely revealed truths of the faith applicable to their lives. Right, A mentality, I'm going to take this doctrine and I'm going to let it uh, grow in their hearts because I'm going to be strategic about how I present it. 
Now, this question, can you tell me about your daily lived relationship with the Lord? That's not a question you ask the kids. That's a question I'm asking you. My daily lived relationship with the Lord, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? Okay, I want you, a good catechist, right, views their time in faith formation as a serious apostolate for your life. This isn't just something that you're doing to help out in a pinch. Christ is equipping you and calling you to engage in an apostolate. That is your share and my share as an apostle engaging in the apostolic work of the church. So let's take this seriously. Okay, here's one that I just uber practical. Your craft projects and art stuff, make sure they explicitly tie in to what is going on. So I remember one time I walked in and it's like, you know, how many more cotton balls can we glue to paper plates and call it the Lamb of God, right? Like at some point we have to move on to something else. What are you doing? Drawing a picture of my family. Didn't you do that last week? Sure did. Um, but we have 10 minutes left. Truly be effective and relevant to the lessons. We connect the timeless truths to the age. We don't update the gospel to today's views. They say that a good evangelist, and everyone in this room is an evangelist, a good evangelist has a Bible in one hand and the times in the other. So here you can read the times and here you can read the eternities and see how they apply, right? It's not that we read the times and then edit the eternities, right? We don't want to do that. The moment we compromise the gospel, it's not the gospel we believe in, but ourselves, The moment we pick and choose, yes, this, no, that, I'm going to minimize this, I'm going to maximize that, that's where we begin to compromise. But we don't want to be compromisers. Because if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. If it's a mist for the teacher, it's a fog for the students, right? So what we want to do is be able to pass on the pure and beautiful faith of Christ. Tie every lesson always to the person of Jesus, especially the Paschal mystery, the dying and rising of Christ. Every single thing. Now, I teach a class called Inclusion, which is to help well-formed Protestants who want to become Catholic become Catholic. It's a shortened form of the longer RCIA. And in that, I know that many of them are, not all of them, but many of them are evangelical, non-denominational Christians. So when they come, they know the initial proclamation really well. I show them how every teaching in the Catholic Church is tied to that initial proclamation. Moving on. Work with your leadership Right? That involves me as well to help out, right? to come alongside you. But to all those volunteers and staff members who are here, work with your leadership to create a better classroom environment. Whatever that needs. Like, Don't be afraid to say, I'm struggling with classroom management. I'm struggling with discipline. I need your help. I need your advice. Don't be afraid to do that. Why? Because we're a community. Excuse me, a communion. We are here to support and help one another. Right? We are the body of Christ, and as St. Paul says, and thus individually members of one another. That's powerful. Uh, uh, last one. Remember, you are making a difference. People, let's be honest. Sometimes the kids are going to drive you nuts. Sometimes the parents are going to drive you nuts. Sometimes I'm going to drive you nuts. I'll walk by your, your classroom and just yell, millstone, and then I'll run away. No. But remember, you are making a difference. You are making a difference in someone's life. I'm going to tell you a true story. This... Uh, uh, somewhat stodgy old catechist, frumpy and angry, used to tell their kids, just remember that God loves you. No matter what, no matter who you are, God loves you. So this person, that's what I think she was in fourth grade when she had this catechist, grows up, becomes an adult, sinks deeply into depression after a very painful breakup, and desires to end her life. Literally is minutes away and remembers the words of that woman. 
She ends up going back, leaving. I think she was, I want to say she was in college at the time. And she drives home and she spends time. She goes to confession. She changes her life because the words of a catechist when she was in fourth grade. Now, I don't want to put a heavy burden on you like you are the Savior, right? But I do want to say that your words make a difference for good or for ill. But here, the discipline of having a daily prayer life, putting Christ at the center of your life as well as your catechesis, this is going to change them for the better for life. For the better for life. I met a kid who's an atheist and he said, who came from this church, and he said, I would be a far worse person if it wasn't for St. Anthony's. I struggle with whether or not God is real, but I know their love for me was real. I know their love for me was real. Because it was when his daddy died, we all rallied around him. Okay? What makes a bad catechist? You're unprepared. You haven't read it or prayed about it. I know no one in this room has ever done that. But to be a bad catechist means you don't look at the lesson until the morning of or till you're in class. Don't do that. Think ahead of time. You don't know your kids' names. Know their names. is the most important thing you can do. You never pray for them. You don't quote the Bible. There was some textbook that literally out of page after page, chapter after chapter, didn't have one reference to the Bible, one quote. Quote scripture. Learn scripture. It's beautiful. You never share your story of God's movement in your life. Make it personal. You don't think about conversion, only communicating the doctrine. Clarity is beautiful. Conviction is better. Clarity is beautiful. Conviction is better. And that's alliteration, so you know it's true. You don't see the whole and how it's all interrelated to Christ and the Trinity, what we call the two foundational doctrines of the church, the Trinity and the Incarnation. And a bad catechist, prayer is nothing but a bookend to your class. I remember one time I was teaching, and it was a rough topic, so we just stopped in the middle and began praying. That's a beautiful model. That's a great witness. Everyone loves a beautiful model. That's why they make millions of dollars. You want to be that beautiful model of Christian holiness. Amen? I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Practical takeaways. This is where I'm going to wrap up. Personal prayer time. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. Read it. Read it. Read it. He says, uh, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. <gasps> You're one of those. Out of the five categories St. Paul names, you are called to be a teacher in Christ Jesus. Now, why did he do it? For the equipment of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and builds itself in love. Isn't that what we want at our parish? So, before you go to bed tonight, read Ephesians chapter 4. Number 2, number 2, CT, uh, Catechesi Tridente, paragraph 5. Memorize it, that first paragraph quote that I have on page number 1. Number three, after you get the roster of your kids, handwrite in a book every kid's name and pray for one minute for each kid in your class. This is totally practical. Everyone can do this. In preparing your lesson and keeping in mind the good, bad catechist, write one sentence that ties it explicitly to Jesus Christ. One sentence that ties it explicitly to Jesus Christ. And number five, come up with one example from your life per lesson. I recommend you go to Target where all good things come from. You buy a moleskin journal, one of those small moleskin journals, and you write down lesson one. You write the name. You get the, 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 the lesson plan, and you hammer down, and in your own words, write down, okay, this is, this is, hey, this is like when my car broke down when I was 17 years old, and blah, blah, blah. Write down a story. Share your life, because you don't love unless you're giving yourself away. Amen? Let me pray for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we bless and praise your holy and sacred name. I thank you, Heavenly Father, from whom every good and perfect gift descends from you. That you have secured with us in Jesus Christ every heavenly blessing. I thank you, Lord, for these people in this room. I thank you for their yes. Not yes and no but they have made a commitment to serve you and serving the body of Christ. That they echo that when you said, Lord Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we too participate in your one supreme act of service through your death on the cross by our saying yes, carving out in our schedules, in our busy days, in our own family's life, a dedication to the glory of God and his kingdom. Jesus, though the task ahead might be wearisome, and some days the hour I have with them might feel like a week, they will know by my presence that I know them and love them. Because Christ, you know me, and you love me. It is not that I loved first, but rather I have received your love, that I desire to give it to all those who come to know the truth of your mystery. Jesus, in your matchless name, we pray. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of the New Evangelization, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all.